It seemed like a good idea at the time. Once Rachel Carson had explained how chemical toxins were contaminating our world, the idea of establishing one central government agency to regulate those chemicals seemed like the logical thing to do. And at first, it worked well. Scientists and administrators at the Environmental Protection Agency took their jobs seriously and began to regulate chemicals that were harming people and the environment. But over the years, the agency meant to protect us has become the agency that protects the chemical industry instead. This is why so many toxic chemicals remain in the products we buy and use every day. This is how the revolving door in Washington impacts your life and the lives of millions of others. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, public health and medical professionals, authors, engineers, activists, reporters, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what's really going on around you, how it affects your health and safety, and how you can protect yourself and your family in this increasingly toxic world. On our show today, we'll talk with investigative reporter Sharon Lerner about some of her recent articles on trouble within the EPA, gain-of-function research like the kind that produced the COVID-19 virus, and how the revolving door in Washington is neutering the agencies that are supposed to be protecting us. Sharon is the kind of persistent truth-seeker we need more of today, and you can hear our interview with her coming up right after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? I have several good ones today. The one that I'm going to start with is about businesses warning government to halt destruction of nature or risk a dead planet. That's kind of something that That's not what businesses usually do. That's not what they usually do, so that's why it's so interesting. So this was written by Patrick Greenfield and published in The Guardian, um, entitled Businesses Warned Government to Halt Destruction of Nature or Risk Dead Planet. As world leaders meet in China to draw up a draft UN agreement for biodiversity, business leaders are joining together to demand action. In an open letter, the chief executives of Unilever, H&M, and nine other companies have called on governments worldwide to take meaningful action on mass extinctions of wildlife and the collapse of ecosystems or risk, quote, a dead planet, end quote. The warning comes as China prepares to assume the leadership of a major UN environment meeting for the first time by hosting the opening phase of the Convention on Biological Diversity, with most delegates attending virtually. In the second phase of talks next year, which have been delayed repeatedly because of the pandemic, governments will thresh out this decade's targets for preventing biodiversity loss in person. In the letter, the Business for Nature Coalition said that the current draft of a Paris-style UN Agreement for Nature, which includes targets to eliminate plastic pollution, reduce pesticide use by two-thirds, and dramatically reduce the rate of invasive species introduction by 2030, did not go far enough to halt the destruction of the natural world. Separately, more than 1,000 companies have signed a call for governments to adopt policies to reverse nature loss by 2030. The Paris Climate Agreement, adopted in 2015, is a legally binding international treaty to tackle the climate crisis by pledging to hold global heating to below 2 degrees Celsius, the scientifically advised limit of safety, with an aspiration not to breach 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. 
Nature is at a tipping point and time is against us, the letter stated. We must recognize nature loss for the crisis that it is. We must understand that while it is critical for tackling climate change, nature represents more than simply a climate solution. The executives urge world leaders to commit to an equivalent of the 1.5 degrees Celsius climate target for nature around which businesses and civil society can unify, writing that current proposals were unclear. They also urge governments to eliminate and redirect all environmentally harmful subsidies and embed the economic value of nature in decision making. David Cooper, Deputy Executive Secretary of the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity, said that discussions were advancing well despite the pandemic. Quote, we look to political leaders to mandate their negotiators to find consensus while ensuring the necessary biodiversity goals and the means to achieve them, end quote. It's really exciting that business is telling government to do this now instead of, you know. Yeah, but, you know, what if government comes back to business and says, well, you need to eliminate, you know, all these 7,000 chemicals that you're, that you're using that are, you know, impacting the environment and therefore impacting species and therefore impacting extinction I, potential. I was thinking about that, that everything's yeah. connected. It's not it's, possible it's to just, you know. But still, to call for a yeah, protection of nature it's, it's, is really It's what we call a good. baby step. And mm. I don't think we can afford baby steps right now, but you know what? It's a step. Let's go. Let's call it a step. Okay. All right. This next one is from Newsday, um, written by Judith Enk and Richard Ottinger. And the title is Climate Change Threat from Plastic. There's been a lot of media attention paid to the fact that plastic waste is rapidly turning our oceans into landfills. Ocean plastic has also been the focus of legislation and other actions to address the problem. Although plastic pollution does pose a major and growing danger to marine wildlife, ecosystems, fisheries, and human health, plastic is, unfortunately, not just a threat to our oceans. Plastic is also a major threat to our climate and our collective future, a fact overlooked in most climate change programs, including the important new Biden climate agenda. The rarely discussed reality is that plastic is a significant climate threat. In fact, if plastic were a country, it would be the world's fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter, beating out all but China, the U.S., India, and Russia. In the United States, plastic is made from a combination of chemicals and ethane, a byproduct of hydrofract natural gas. Plastics release greenhouse gases at every stage of their life, from extraction to refinement to production to transport to usage to disposal and beyond. In fact, scientists are questioning whether microplastic pollution may interfere with our ocean's ability to act as a crucial carbon sink. Worse, the plastic industry plans to triple production by 2050 and has announced major new plastic-related production facilities in Louisiana, Texas, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. By 2050, the accumulation of plastics greenhouse gas emissions worldwide could reach over 56 gigatons. This planned expansion could undermine our ability to remain within the 1.5 degrees Celsius global temperature rise scientists agree is necessary to avoid the worst ravages of climate change. In short, if the plastics industry succeeds with its planned build-out, it's likely game over for the climate. Fortunately, there are solutions, but we must begin by turning off the plastic tap 
to ensure that our society makes, uses, and disposes of less rather than more plastic. The Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, which is Senate Bill 984 and House Bill 2238, introduced by Senator Jeff Merkley, Democrat from Oregon, and Representative Alan Lowenthal, Democrat from California, does just that by establishing a national bottle bill like the one in New York, requiring recycled content in beverage containers and pausing for three years the permitting of new plastic-related production facilities. We call on Congress to pass it without delay. This will be a major fight. Oil and gas companies are banking on the increase in plastic to make up for falling demand for fossil fuels as alternative energy becomes more widely available, affordable, and sought after, and as electric cars and trucks become the norm rather than the exception. Simply put, plastic is big oil's plan B, a fact the industry openly acknowledges. It is clear the petrochemical industry needs to come up with a plan C that will not hasten climate catastrophe. The Biden administration has made slowing climate change one of its top priorities, as it should be. Now we need it and our elected officials to see the big picture and act accordingly. Swift action to limit plastic production and the industry's planned expansion and to phase out single-use plastics must be a mandatory part of the Biden administration's climate change agenda. Here, here, I agree one million percent. Can you have a million percent? No, you can't have it. Oh, no, no, I know you that. can't. I just, no. I was trying to emphasize. I mean, plastics is a big climate change issue, and people don't think about it that way. They just think about it as trash. They you know they're worried about the turtles with the straws stuck up their nostrils, and you know, and so on. It goes so much deeper than that. Well, yeah, I love that. Big oil's plan B. Big oil's is plastic. plan B. Oh, no question. We're going to build more plants. We're going to make yeah. more plastic. And, and hmm. the, you know, you tie this into Sandra Steingraber, who was talking about carbon capture. Okay, so we're, and she said that carbon capture and plastics is the new plan for the oil and gas industries. They're not going to give up and go away easily. No, you know? no, 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 no. Okay. Okay, what and my last one. This last one is really interesting, especially interesting for people who know of someone with amniotropic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. This was written by Huan Jia Zhang, and it is published in Environmental Health News entitled Higher Estimated Pesticide Exposures Linked to ALS Risk. Every year, approximately 5,000 people in the U.S. are diagnosed with amniotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. The malady extinguishes firing nerve cells, severing the highways between our brain and muscles. People progressively lose their ability to walk, talk, eat, and eventually their last breath within two to five years. No one knows the causes. No one knows the cure. But a study recently published in the journal Neurotoxicology sheds light on a potential contributor to the disease, pesticide exposure. By synthesizing available national data on ALS patients and pesticide uses, researchers found new supporting evidence that neurotoxic pesticide exposures could be risk factors for ALS. Scientists believe that only 5 to 10 percent of the purported 16,000 plus ALS cases in the U.S. are due solely to genetics, with the rest likely caused by a synergy of genetic and environmental factors. The question is what are those environmental factors? Although not having established definitive links, previous studies suggest that environmental exposures such as heavy metals, trace elements, radiation, and pesticides were possibly associated with the disease. Past epidemiological studies also showed self-reported or occupational pesticide exposures concur with an elevated number of ALS incidents. 
However, the individual pesticides that might be responsible for the increased ALS risk still remain unclear. Quote, there certainly was suspicion that pesticides may be related to the risk of ALS, end quote, Mark Weisskopf, a neuroepidemiologist at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health said. The results of this study provided, quote, another level of confidence, end quote, in linking the two together. Additionally, the study narrowed down about two dozen herbicides, insecticides, and fungicides that seem to be associated with a higher incidence of ALS. Currently, the U.S. does not mandate ALS reporting at the national level, and Massachusetts is the only state that requires the disease to be registered. Although the U.S. Centers for Disease and Control has a national ALS registry, participation and input from clinicians and patients are voluntary. This is a real problem with our, our tracking system. We don't know who has what or who died of what. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, for, for so many years, we were looking at the death certificates of children who had cancer, and it would say that you know, they died of pneumonia or they died of you know, heart failure or you know, something else. But it, so you didn't have that, that tracking system that was consistent across all 50 states. I find it interesting that scientists seem, always seem to be surprised that this could be a combination of environmental effects and genetics, uh, gen and genetics as well as synergistic effects between several different sources. Um, Correct. Synergistic gee, effects between whiz, maybe this, pharmaceuticals and yeah, the pesticides. Exactly. Maybe other chemicals that they're using in their, you know, in their homes and the pesticides. I mean, it's, it's very complicated. So there's been talk recently um, about simplifying chemistry so that we don't have 40 different chemicals in every product. So that, you know, Patty, we, can, we, got 9, we can tease 000, it out. We have 9,000 PFAS chemicals. I, you know. I know. We're it in, seems like it seems like an impossible yeah. situation that we're in. But then here we have here in this one article that I read, here we have businesses saying, you know, do something about this government. Yeah. Right. Look right. at the loss of biodiversity in, uh, on the planet. You know, do something about it. Well, you know, they're going to have to do something about it, too. Can't just point the finger. Goes All both right. ways. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. The years following the Second World War were full of optimism. American society became more affluent in the post-war years than most Americans could have ever imagined in their wildest dreams. Thanks to the GI Bill and other government programs, millions of Americans went to college, found good jobs, bought homes and cars, had kids, and took vacations. Manufacturers developed and sold exciting new products. Television was born, along with other things made possible by scientific discovery. This was especially true in the chemical industry. Chemical engineers had been busy during the war developing poisons. After the war, the industry found itself with an array of new chemical compounds, but nowhere to sell them. Marketing departments looked for new uses and found agriculture. Chemical pesticides, in many cases based on the same compounds developed for war, could dramatically reduce pest populations. Sales soared, and soon most farms were regularly using pesticides in crop production. 
A decade later, a young scientist, ecologist, and writer named Rachel Carson burst the bubble of American optimism with her book, Silent Spring, which documented the toll of chemical pesticides on the natural world and warned of more trouble to come if we didn't find a way to curtail our use of these poisons. And so it was in 1970 that President Richard Nixon requested funding from Congress to establish a new agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, to monitor, regulate, and if necessary, prohibit the use of chemical toxins. The agency was wildly popular with the American people. This was government at its best, acting as the buffer between an industry seeking profits and the public who deserved a clean and safe environment. Rules were established, new laws were passed, and a new era was born. But industry wasn't happy. Over the ensuing years, thousands of scientists, administrators, and regulators came to work at the EPA, many from within the chemical industry itself. And gradually, over the years, the ground began to shift. Instead of finding ways to protect the public from chemical toxins, the agency began to establish rules that made it much harder to do its own job. Members of Congress, on behalf of rich and powerful supporters, introduced laws that limited what the agency was permitted to do. The EPA's budget was cut, programs were stopped, and the agency became almost toothless. How did this happen, and what can be done about it? Sharon Lerner is an investigative reporter at The Intercept, covering health, science, and the environment. Her work focuses on how corporate pollution impacts ordinary Americans as well as failures within the environmental regulatory process. Her stories have been used in congressional hearings, have helped convince the U.S. Air Force to discontinue its use of PFC-containing firefighting foam, and have helped get PFOA listed in the Stockholm Convention. Her investigation of Corpyrophos was the first to lay out how the Trump administration might reverse a long-awaited ban of the pesticide. Her stories have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, and The Washington Post, among other publications. Last week, Patty and I had a chance to talk with Sharon about her work, the EPA, the origins of COVID, and other things. Here's our interview with Sharon Warner. I've been focused on the new chemicals division and what's happening there. I've also written more broadly about the sort of effort to clean up EPA, which um, both Biden and Reagan have spoken a lot about. Um, And Mm -hmm. they've really said a lot of good things about scientific integrity and letting the science lead the way, et cetera. It seems that rhetoric is really being (laughs) put to the test in the division of new chemicals. I've been speaking with a number of sources there who have put in whistleblower disclosures, shared them with us and with members of Congress and with the EPA Inspector General. And they have really detailed some alarming problems that uh, some of which began under um, the Trump administration. Some of them began before then, and many of which are ongoing under the current administration. So the kinds of things that I've been looking at are the manipulation of assessments of chemicals. So when scientists are kind of following the law and trying to determine whether chemicals that may enter the market are present a threat to human health, they have to go through these steps and and put out a a formal assessment of the chemical. And the the folks that have been working on that are being thwarted in in a bunch of ways. I mean, sometimes they have their work changed. Sometimes they are being forced to change their own work, pressured to change their own work. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's been very disappointing. And again, yes, is continuing under the current administration. 
In one of the papers that you wrote, or one of the um, the articles, the Department of Yes, uh, which I have been through a few times, you talked pretty extensively about the glyphosate issue. Can you just give us a kind of an outline of of what happened there and how the EPA, you know, for so many years said that it was not carcinogenic and blah blah blah, and just give us a how the how the EPA handled that one particular chemical. So glyphosate is officially, um, you know, we have re-registered the the United States EPA re-registered glyphosate as a pesticide several times and. Most recently, even though IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, considers glyphosate a probable carcinogen. And and that's because there's ample evidence that from independent scientists that glyphosate causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we've seen that despite the fact that the EPA has refused to recognize that or at least let it guide its registration uh, decisions about registering registering glyphosate, um, we've seen that that evidence has been found very compelling by juries that have been looking at um, glyphosate and Roundup and as a cause of cancer. And uh, again, and IARC has also found that. And also what I found when I was researching this piece is that folks within EPA had done a meta-analysis of the literature and found that in fact, it was, uh, there was likely a connection. And yet this document that I found from 2016, parts of it were reproduced in final documents issued by EPA around glyphosate, but the pieces of it were sort of cherry picked and the ultimate, uh, the finalized documents came to the opposite conclusion that the document that I had found uh, which was from the Office of Research and Development. So there's obviously a lot of controversy around this question, not just um, between EPA and, and other countries and, and international organizations, but also within EPA. Yeah, which, you know, there's a lot of money at stake, of course. And it seems like the EPA, like other agencies in Washington is, you know, not immune to uh, to influence from from industry. And in fact, am I not correct that a lot of the people at EPA have come from the industry itself, the pesticide and other regulated yeah. industries? Well, so the revolving door, right, is famous for this sort of pattern that folks, scientists and, and officials come out of EPA and go on to work for the industry that they were regulating. And what I did was for the Department of Yes, I looked at the heads of the Office of Pesticide Programs and made a little spreadsheet for myself to see who they were and where they went on to work afterwards. And what I found was that going all the way back to 1974, all the folks who had worked as the Office of Pesticide Programs if they had continued to work, that is to say, if they didn't just immediately retire after leaving EPA, then they went on to to earn at least some of their money from the pesticide industry, often all of their money as consultants or attorneys for those companies that they had been regulating. Sure. I mean, 
you know, you, you work for a, an agency for a while and you get to know the inner workings of that agency. You get to know who's making the decisions and, you know, what the processes are and so on. And then you're a very valuable person to the industry. Exactly. And what they often say, um, like on their web pages, if they're consultants or, you know, in the I've seen this in the newsletters from the companies that they went on to work for, you know, they use the word navigate that, you know, so and so will help clients navigate the regulatory system. And so I think you're right. That's exactly it. They, they kind of know who's who and how to get in touch and which calls to make. And I saw that really, really clearly in um, those first pieces I mentioned about PFOA. And I, I should say that those, anyone who's interested in that PFOS series, which went on to, I, I have lost count, but it was in the 40s, Last time I counted the number of articles in that series, many, many pieces about PFAS, if anyone wants to go deep on them. But the third piece in the, in the initial series, which was called the Teflon Toxin, that series, and really took a look at the process that DuPont undertook when EPA started kind of sniffing around PFOA and considering regulating it in the early 2000s. And it was really something to see the number of uh, post EPA, former EPA employees who helped DuPont doing exactly what we're talking about, calling to the people, their their former colleagues who were still in the agency, um, making sure that their statements were inserted into press releases, you know, that were put out by the agency. And I think foremost, basically negotiating so that when, in that case, they face the possibility of having their chemical regulated, a big important chemical, and, and basically forcibly regulated without without their choice. Yeah. They ended up going to, into like heavy overdrive negotiations that resulted in, I think, for, for the company and ultimately others that make the chemical a very favorable resolution, which is they weren't subject to the Clean Water Act regulations, safe drinking water regulations. Instead, they had this voluntary withdrawal phase out of PFOA that was so slow that it allowed them time to create and, and get approval for the replacement, which turned out to be essentially as bad. So anyone who's into that kind of thing could um, check out the piece. It's called How DuPont Slipped by the EPA. But it was a revelation to me to, to see all the work behind the scenes that happens you know, and, and and when you you get the press release from EPA, it was Pat's Dupont on the back for phasing out this chemical. When you look behind the scenes, you see what actually happened, and what didn't happen really. What was avoided by these kinds of of kind of insider negotiations is is pretty startling. I have to think that people that go to work for the EPA do so, generally speaking, with good intentions. There are people who want to see the environment protected. Why is it that so many of them, you think, take another turn? They get to EPA, you know, they spend a few years there, they see how the system works, and then they go to work for the industries that they know are creating problems for the environment. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, you can just say that you'd have to follow the money. And you can say that about almost everything. 
when we're talking about environmental regulation and especially, you know, within the chemical industry and the fossil fuel industry and the pharmaceutical industry and et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I'd like to, to, to make this piece. Do I get my question? Patty? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was, I was asking Sharon, of course. I, I know. Love, I love to hear from you too. Of course. I know. <laughs> I certainly agree. A lot of the folks I talk to at EPA, their hearts are where you would expect them to be. They're, they've done this work because they care about the environment and the natural world. Um, I would not say that's everyone there. And and some people, you know, we think of the revolving door as going from EPA to industry, but it's also true that some in industry, it, you know, they it goes the other way too. So yeah. people some sometimes go to the uh, to the agency coming from the pesticide companies or whatever. But I do think also there is a process that was described to me by some former OPP folks about what happens when you're in the agency. Some of it, I think, is contact with industry, whether with lobbyists or just folks who are more present than we'd like to think in in the day-to-day operations of the agency. I heard about them kind of hanging around the building and, and really working hard to make personal connections with EPA scientists. But also... What happens is, I think, especially within the Office of Pesticides, at the highest levels, there is um, a lot of interaction between industry and the agency. And partly that's because industry funding pays for some of the testing and because they actually have to get some of the tests from companies. So there's just lots and lots of interaction. And you know, the hiring and the promotion within the agency, I think it is affected by that sort of corporate friendliness at the top. And so what I heard over and over again, talking to people, and for that story, I, I talked to dozens of people. I really heard that if you want to get promoted, if you want to get the spots on committees that allow you to get promoted, you have to go along. You have mm-hmm. to not be the difficult person who says, that's not right. That's not right. That's not, you know, <laughs> You know, maybe you can do that once or twice, but you can't be, you know, you can't be sticking your neck out all the time. And so there's this sort of internal force that makes the ranks more and more industry friendly as you get higher, sort of. That's the way I understood it. Yeah. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is investigative reporter Sharon Lerner, whose work appears in The Intercept and other major publications. We'll be right back. Your body's breaking, but you will rise. 
A bit of optimism and hope in a world of semi-darkness. That's that's Liz Simmons with a song we wrote together called You Will Rise uh, from a new release that'll be out soon called Made in Vermont. Now let's get back to our interview with Sharon Lerner, investigative reporter for The Intercept. We were talking about sticking your neck out when you work for a government agency. Well, you know, Rachel Carson was sticking her neck out over and over and over and had her own difficulties with with the government there where there was no EPA, you know, early on. And then she was partly responsible for the EPA's establishment under the under the Nixon administration. But it was because she did stick her neck out because she did say, no, 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 this is not right. This is not right. So anyway, I would love to ask you what's going on with the Wuhan lab and our participation in gain-of-function research that is taking place there. Yeah, so I, along with some colleagues, have been doing some reporting on the origins of the pandemic, and we've done several pieces so far, I think three um, recently. Um, I guess the, the first one came about because I had put in a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, um, a year ago, actually more than a year ago at this point, for grant application that was written by the Eco Health Alliance, which is this New York-based nonprofit that does science research, often government-funded. And we knew that it was public that they had a grant from NIH to study bat coronaviruses, and that sub-awardee of that grant was the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and obviously, in the beginning, from the beginning of the pandemic, there have been 
questions about the fact that this the first cases arose in Wuhan, where there's a, an institute that studies bad coronaviruses. And, you know, so that's it's not necessarily mm. where you're most likely to find um, the bats that carry these uh, coronaviruses, even though there is a wet market there. So the problem, you know, so it seemed like an interesting question a year ago. We did not, um, the NIH denied our initial request. We ended up um, suing them and we were uh, given ultimately two grants, one of which was this, the one about the bat coronavirus research. And in it, there was a description of an experiment in which the researchers basically created what they call chimeric viruses, which is they take different parts of viruses and combine them, and starting with a bat coronavirus. And they inserted these viruses into what they call humanized mouse cells, which are genetically engineered mouse cells. And they found that, in fact, they reproduced more quickly and that they were, in some cases, more pathogenic than uh, the original viruses. So, you know, there's been a lot of debate and discussion about what exactly gain-of-function research is. And very briefly, it's the kind of research in which a virus is enhanced to become more transmissible or more pathogenic. So, what we did was, with that first piece, you know, we reported what was in the grant. And then we talked to numerous scientists who work in, you know, virologists or people who work very closely on viruses and these types of viruses. And overwhelmingly, uh, I should say not without exception, but most of them agreed that this was in fact gain of function research of concern. And that's a term that's an important term and an important finding because in the past, NIH and particularly Anthony Fauci, who le leads the NIAID within NIH, has said that, that we weren't engaged in that kind of thing. So, you know, I should say it's been like a very, it's obviously a very politicized topic and one that's been used kind of unfortunately as this sort of wedge issue on the right and with Trump, you know, and there have been lots of kind of wacky theories, unsubstantiated theories put out there, but we've been really careful with this reporting to follow the science. And so mm -hmm. basically, without indulging, you know, I mean, my inbox is full of lots of crazy folks right now. I think that we're trying to, I think it's important to kind of put the politics aside for a moment and kind of look at what happened. And I think, I'm, I don't think we can say that it was a lab accident or lab related release at this point, but I definitely think it's, an open question and it's a plausible theory. And so we we reported on that and we have actually another piece about that coming out probably in an hour. So we have, and that'll be our third piece on that. Then we also reported on a grant proposal, another grant proposal from the EcoHealth Alliance that was submitted to DARPA, which is a division of the Department of Defense. That proposal wasn't funded, but what was interesting in that proposal um, and I should say, we didn't get that proposal. That was released by an online research group called Drastic, but it does appear to have been genuine and submitted to, to DARPA. And what that showed was that EcoHealth Alliance, along with some of the same researchers, were considering, at least considering, inserting this particular 
feature into uh, a bat coronavirus that has been seen in SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that, you know, caused the mm. pandemic. And so this little site, which is called the furin cleavage site, has been the subject of a lot of speculation from scientists who have noted that it's unusual for a bat coronavirus of that class. It's not usually there. And in fact, in the in the particular class it's in, it hasn't been seen. So before this grant had come out, people had speculated, well, where did it come from and could it have been absurded? And the folks who believe strongly that it's definitely from a spillover, the, the, the pandemic, kind of attacked that notion as absurd. Why would anybody engineer this, right? Mm. And what that DARPA grant showed was that, in fact, at least the EcoHealth Alliance was at least considering it. Um, it's also possible, according to some folks we talked to, that you know sometimes when you submit a grant like this, you've done some of the research. So we can't rule that mm -hmm. out. So it just, I think more than anything, again, this is not proof that the pandemic uh, arose in a lab at all. But what it does show is that there's lots of information and a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of information we don't have and should have. The way we got um, at least the NIH grant was you know, really forcing it out of the agency. We sued them. Uh, others had filed for some of the same things. And, you know, we just, we pursued it uh, through the courts. Mm -hmm. And and so it's it's just, I guess it's unfortunate with a question that's so important, right? In terms, not just what happened in the past, but also, you know, how do we inform our oversight of this kind of research going forward, you know, that we don't have more transparency. In your research, has anybody ever articulated to you the positive benefits of making a virus more transmissible and more lethal? I mean, what well, is there yeah. a purpose to gain of function beyond that of, of killing people? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, gain of function, I think everybody acknowledges that that there is there are some kinds of gain of function experiments more broadly that uh, that don't involve potential pandemic pathogens that are fine and useful. But what I think the folks who have been pushing for for this kind of risky research would say, and and particularly you know the folks at Eco Health, is that what they say is that they're trying to prevent the next pandemic. And obviously, even before the this happened, the, the pandemic, there were many people who said this is way too dangerous to pursue this kind of thing. And so, you know, when we talk about the the lab leak theory, it's not just the idea that there was some accident and, and, and perhaps the virus filled out this way, but but the grant proposals make it clear that that organization and other scientists were involved in collecting thousands of samples of bad coronaviruses, going to remote locations and caves, collecting them, bringing them back to Wuhan. That in and of itself entails risk, right? You're, you're mm -hmm. kind of bringing mm -hmm. them out. Um, mm -hmm. And then there is, you know, the gain of function research. And then what could happen if you're creating more dangerous viruses that can then, you know, can infect lab workers. So in terms of the, I do think it's important to make the distinction that it's not all gain of function research, but gain of function research, the, the term they use is of concern, which is that involves not just potential, they call it potential PPPs, potential pandemic pathogens, or something that can reasonably be assumed to turn into one, which is where you get into the kind of research we're talking about. Okay. 
<laughs> it, it seems counterintuitive to, to see what you can do to alter the genetic makeup of a virus and, and claim you're trying to prevent the next pandemic. But maybe that's just maybe that's an uneducated view. Which no, it's, it's not at all. I mean, so many, many, many people agree with you. It's just that there, well, you know, and there was like a lively debate about this, right? And then mm. the gain of function research of concern was paused from 2014 to 2017. It was resumed in 2017 with some very specific guidelines that were supposed to protect everybody. Mm. But what mm. happened in this case, at least as far as we can tell so far, you know, when we presented what we found to NIH, which, of course, which is based on what they gave us, um, but we said, hey, you know, it looks like many, many scientists we've spoken to think that this clearly fits the definition of gain-of-function research, your own definition of gain-of-function research. And, and actually, in the grant, it said, you know, if certain conditions are met, then, you know, we'll stop this grant, And meaning in terms of the increase in transmissibility. Mm -hmm. um, and we asked, well, why didn't that happen? And they said, well, we reviewed the material and we decided that it should not be subject to those guidelines. So what... It, what it appears to me at this point, it, it appears that basically they came up with these really thorough, great guidelines and then just dodged them with the decision that they didn't apply. Yeah. So just trying to, I mean, I think again, in terms of open questions, there's a lot more here about like, why? <laughs> Who yeah. made that decision? How was that decision made? So you said that um, that under the under the Obama Obama administration that they actually defunded this type of research, and that once Trump was elected that they began funding it again. What do you know about why the Obama administration made that decision to stop funding gain of function research? Well. I, you know, it, you're absolutely right that it was in 2014. It is my understanding that it isn't so much aligned with the politics on the top of either administration, either of these decisions. So the pause was paused because because of the concern of of the dangers, the kinds of dangers we're talking about, and. Again, the resumption was only in this very narrow set of circumstances that were supposed to be subject to these very thorough guidelines. Well, Sharon, we're going to be coming to the end of our, our talk here. Very fascinating. And let me echo Patty's, uh, Patty's statement at the beginning. We really appreciate both you and The Intercept for getting these stories out there. These are stories that don't always appear everywhere. And like our own show, Green Street, you know, we cover subjects that may not be covered in the New York Times. So so, so thank you for that. Yeah. And I guess this is just a, a personal question here and that you're diving into all of these really big environmental health issues. And how do you feel about this personally when you when you realize that there are over 9000 chemicals in the PFAS class and how do you avoid them? In your in your own life, I mean, we talk about this all the time. I mean, it's like you know, we usually come out with a you know with a story about something that's really harmful, but then we usually give people, and here's what you can do about it. We give you solutions, not just the problem, but the problem, and then here are the things that you can do to protect your family. Here are the things that you can do to reduce your risk. What do you do to re reduce your risk to PFAS chemicals, which are so ubiquitous? Yeah. And, and they're one class, right? You're absolutely yeah. right. And it's crazy making. And I would like to say that I have like 
come through all this reporting completely sane. I'm not sure I can say that. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, for me, the thing that like drives me completely up a wall is plastic, um, plastic waste. And I mean, and of course there's the concern about plasticizers and all the chemicals that are endo- endocrine disruptors in the plastic. And then there's the fact that we are polluting the planet with unnecessary single use plastic. And then it's basically impossible to avoid. And that's the thing that um i i really like eats my soul so you know i do think it's imp- uh, impossible to really do this stuff without feeling like a deep grief about about the world the other thing is that like once you recognize that these issues are happening and these problems are there then the only thing sadder than reporting on them would be not reporting on them You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today has been investigative reporter Sharon Lerner, whose work appears in The Intercept and other major publications. This is the point in our show when Patty answers questions from our listeners about environmental health concerns they have in their lives. This week, the question is about the laundry. Kate from Philadelphia writes, I have a busy family and do lots of laundry. I've read that some of the ingredients in laundry products are actually harmful to the environment. What do you use in your laundry and why? Well, she's right about what she heard. The most popular brands of laundry products can leave chemical residues in the fabrics that can actually cause skin irritation, sometimes even neurological problems, especially allergies though, and as and asthmatics, mm-hmm. um, you know, reactions in some individuals. So these are, are chemicals that are in the laundry products themselves. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and they don't have to disclose what's in the product, so you can't actually go to you know, the store and turn over the bottle and see all of the ingredients. But I mean, they they almost always contain things like sodium lauryl sulfate or sodium laureth sulfate, you know, phosphates, formaldehyde, chlorine, ammonium sulfate, 1,4-dioxane, blah, blah, blah. Um, optical brighteners is another really important one. You know, it, it's it's designed for, you know, for removing stains, but it actually doesn't remove them. It actually coats the clothing with a substance that reflects visible light. So it actually oh, hides on. the stains. Really? It doesn't really remove the stains, which is really interesting. But, you know, one of the most important ingredients in laundry products that uh, that causes harm is uh, is the fragrances. And fragrances are really, really tough. They are, you know, chemicals. They are usually derived from, um, you know, petroleum-based chemicals. Uh, they contain phthalates, these large molecule phthalates that help the the scent last longer. Mm. Um, and and you know how long it lasts. And I mean, is... just walk into somebody's house who uses, you know, a, a fragranced laundry product and a fragranced, uh, you know, dryer sheet. The whole house and smells. the entire house smells like that. Yeah. And people actually become almost immune to that. It really affects their olfactory nerve and they can't they really smell it, smell it anymore. Yeah. It's amazing. And you can even walk around the block, you know, and and smell, smell. it, you know, just pouring out of people's sure. dryer vents. It's uh, it's really problematic. All right, so, so what, what do you use so and why? What we do is we use bio-based laundry uh, in, ingredients. We don't use any dryer products. Uh, you can achieve the same kind of softness that you're looking for with a dryer sheet by just adding a half a cup of white vinegar to your, you know, your washing machine. Uh-huh. 
Um, people also use these these wool balls. Yeah, I've seen um, those. And you can actually add, like, a, if you want a scent, you can add a little natural scent, like a little drop of lavender or rose scent or whatever, an essential oil yeah. form, you know, to the balls that you put in the dryer. And you don't have to use all those chemicals. I mean, things like, you know, like Bounce and, and other dryer sheets, I mean, they contain a slew of chemicals. And, and what they're really doing is they're coating your 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 fabrics or your your clothing or your sheets and towels with this oily you know s substance so that they feel soft but it's not actually you know it's actually not the fabric that you're feeling now it's you're beginning to feel this oil which is making them soft it's crazy <sighs> it's Holy crazy cow. anyway what we do is we use bio-based products so that you know a, a lot of laundry uh producers today manufacturers are using um, botanicals, minerals, forestry products, marine products, and so on to create a very, very effective cleaning product. And so my whole thing is, you know, if you're using something that is based in nature and you use it to, you know, to do something in your home, like clean your laundry, uh, and then it goes down the drain, it's going back into the environment where it came from in the first place. You're not going to hurt anything. Causing no harm. Yeah. But a lot of these, these chemicals in laundry detergents um, can actually cause real harm once it gets out into these aquatic environments, can have a huge impact, especially things like phosphates. I mean, a lot of places around the country ban them, mm -hmm. but it causes real problems uh, in the environment, especially eutrophication in waterways. Um, and then, you know, something like 1,4-Dioxane is not actually added to yeah. the laundry products, but um, it is a, it's, it's a, a chemical, a very dangerous chemical, actually. We know it's a human carcinogen. Um, it's actually created when they put a cheap or harsh detergent into the product, and then they ethoxylate it. It's, a, it's an industrial process. And when you ethoxylate um, these cheap detergents, it creates 1,4-Dioxane. And they do that in not just laundry detergents, but also in shampoos and bubble bath, liquid soaps, liquid laundry detergents especially. So places that have high levels of 1,4-Dioxane in their drinking water supply should have, you know, legislation, you know, banning the use of liquid laundry detergents because it's a huge, huge supplier of of 1,4-Dioxane um, into our into our water supplies. All right, okay. so natural Bio laundry detergent. detergents. And, and please use powdered laundry detergent. It's those liquid laundry detergents that cause a lot of problems. They are the ones that have the optical brighteners in them, you know, mostly and so on. Um, but it's, it's easy to do. I mean, it's really easy to just use a powdered laundry detergent, unscented. And like I say, if you want to scent your laundry, yeah, you can. Then you can do it with essential oils on these wool balls. It's not. It's not rocket science. Don't you have to use? Good don't thing you to do for you, your family, your indoor air quality. We're going to be talking about that, you know, with a new guest in a couple of weeks about indoor air quality and how dangerous it is and how much more polluted it is than outdoor air quality. But, you know, these are depending on where you live. Yeah. So. Okay. Great. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. If you have an environmental question for Patty, anything from cleaning products to water filters to air fresheners to dry cleaning to paint, carpeting, baby furniture, wireless radiation, whatever it is, drop us a line at greenstreetradio.com. And if you missed any part of today's program, you can always catch it again on our website 
That's www.greenstreetradio.com where you can submit your questions to Patty and also sign up for our newsletter. In case you missed it, our guest last week was Shanna Swan, one of the country's leading epidemiologists, talking about how endocrine-disrupting chemicals are impacting sperm rates, and at the rate we're going, we may not be able to reproduce in about 30 years. It's really a fascinating interview, which you can hear again at greenstreetradio.com. That's going to do it for our show today. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. See you next time.